Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, well, you can grab a Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 3. As you're finding your place, as we've started this new series through Genesis, so far we have seen that God created the universe as a giant cosmic temple, and that He created human beings to fill the earth with living representations of His goodness and glory as they follow His design and experience His blessing. Unfortunately, last week we read about how everything fell apart in the Garden of Eden as the serpent convinced Adam and Eve to rebel against God by eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which severed their relationship with God and brought a divine curse upon the earth. However, fortunately, we also saw reason for hope because the Lord revealed that He was unwilling to allow mankind to remain separated from Him forever, and He promised that a seed, a, a descendant from Eve, would eventually defeat the serpent and make all things right again. And now the rest of the book of Genesis, and really the, the rest of the Old Testament as a whole for that matter, is the story of how God begins to bring that promise to fulfillment. Uh, through all the ups and downs and twists and turns of human history, of which there are many. And so we're going to begin to see that this morning as we read the story of Cain and Abel. So we're in Genesis chapter 4, and we're going to begin reading in verse 1. It says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well... Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And so as we move into chapter 4, we see that Adam knew his wife, which is a polite way of saying that Adam and Eve pursued the Lord's command to be fruitful and multiply. And Eve conceives, and she bears a son whom she names Cain. And then later she has another son who is named Abel. And Abel grows up to be a shepherd who takes care of sheep, and Cain becomes a farmer who works the ground. Now in verse 3, a time comes when Cain and Abel bring offerings to the Lord. And we're not entirely sure of why they did this. Was this something that God commanded them to do, or was this their own idea? Uh, but Cain brings some of the fruit of the ground, what he has grown in the field, 
And Abel brings one of the firstborn of his sheep, and particularly uh, the fat portions. And we see that the Lord has regard for Abel's offering. He accepts it, but he rejects Cain's offering. And the difference between the two offerings appears to be that Abel brought the first and best of his flock, but Cain simply brought some of what was left over from his harvest. And so, in other words, Abel's offering revealed that he prioritized the Lord and that he trusted the Lord to provide for him, whereas Cain simply uh, revealed that he prioritized himself and only brought what was convenient for him to give. And so the Lord rejects Cain's offering, and Cain doesn't take rejection well. The text says that, that he was very angry in the second half of verse 5, and, and visibly so. His face fell. Now, this is a red flag. Right? When you love somebody and you get them a present, you want, the, you want it to be something that they like, right? And so probably most all of us at some point or time have said something along the lines of, hey, if you don't like it, feel free to take it back to the store and get the right size or a different color or just exchange it for something else entirely, right? I don't care. I just want you to be happy. That's my heart in, in giving you this in the first place. And yet, Cain, bringing a subpar offering to the God of the universe, who is infinitely more important than anybody we will ever buy a present for, and who has richly provided for him despite his sinfulness, as Cain does this, it doesn't seem to bother him that it's not something that God wants. In fact, you get the distinct impression that he thinks that God should be grateful that he brought anything at all. I mean, who does God think he is? In response to Cain's anger... The Lord appeals to him in verse 7. He asks, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And he assures Cain that the opportunity to be approved is there if he will take it. And then he also warns him of the danger of continuing down this path that he's on. In the second half of the verse, he says, If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And so the Lord describes sin like a, a wild animal that is crouching outside a door, waiting. And he says, if you open that door, if you give it an opening, then it's going to pounce and it's going to consume you. And so God calls Cain to repent of his attitude before it destroys him. Now, before we move on, I want to take a moment to consider something here. I think it's important for us to see God's love and His holiness together. And what I mean is that in, in this moment, God's love for Cain and His commitment to His own holiness are standing together in a perfect tension. And so often, it's easy for us to embrace either God's love or God's holiness, right? Sometimes Christians are known for their commitment to God's holiness, and so they are all about following the rules, and they get really nervous if you start having too much fun, because there's probably something wrong with that somewhere deep down. You're probably doing something that you shouldn't. And, and in those cases, God's love, a genuine concern for other people, is lacking. But that's not the case here. The Lord doesn't condemn Cain for his, his bad offering. He allows him the opportunity to correct it. 
And so we need to emphasize God's love in the way that we relate to other people. But then at other times, Christians are known for their love to the neglect of God's holiness. Right, we just want to love people, and so we don't want to say or do anything that might offend them or, or that might turn them away or cause them to reject our faith. And so you, you get the impression that if you want to be a Christian, uh, but if you're just really busy or if you've got other hobbies that prevent you from engaging in the life of the church consistently, that's okay. Right? Or, or if you don't want to follow Jesus in obedience in certain areas, that's okay. I mean, it's not ideal, but it's okay. And my, my uh, issue here is, is that as we look at what takes place in the story, uh, the caution that we should have is that God doesn't seem to see it that way. He doesn't seem to see it that way at all, right? Uh, as, as the Lord addresses Cain, uh, he upholds his love for Cain, but he also doesn't change his standard. He invites Cain to do well, but he insists that he do well, right? He doesn't say, you know what, Cain, just, just bring whatever you want to bring. No, he insists you must bring an offering that honors me as God. So if you remember our series through, through Malachi a couple of years ago, you'll remember that we saw the danger of just going through the motions of worship. Right? Even if we do the right things, like, like going to church and reading the Bible and serving in a ministry, if we're not doing those things for the right reasons, or if we're not doing them out of a heart that genuinely loves the Lord, then he's not pleased with that, and we're wasting our time. Not only that, in those times where we're tempted to lower the bar of discipleship for people in order to make the faith more attractive to them, I think there's a logic that's at work there that, that we assume that, that anything is better than nothing. But, but again, I would caution you in light of what we see here that God doesn't see it that way. God doesn't see it that way at all. God is God, and he is worthy of our first and our best in every area of life. God is not interested in your leftover time or your leftover money or your leftover obedience. He is worthy of the best. He should be the priority and everything else in our lives should revolve around him. And we are in dangerous territory when we do not operate like that. And when we went through Luke, we saw that Jesus was clear about the cost of discipleship. He said, if anyone would come after me, then let him take up his cross and follow me. He's not interested in anything less than that. And if, if you're here and that seems unreasonable to you, if that seems excessive, then I would, I would warn you to check your heart that you not respond like Cain. God's love and his holiness always go together. And we need to keep them together in the same way that the Lord does here. The Lord has called Cain to do well and be accepted. And we'll find out what happens as we pick up again in verse 8. It says, Cain spoke to Abel his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. 
And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And so as we pick up with verse 8, it says that Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And as they walk out into the field together, Cain attacks Abel and kills him. Now, Abel hasn't done anything wrong. There's really no reason for Cain to be mad at him. And as the text repeatedly emphasizes, Abel is his brother. This should be his best friend, who he loves and enjoys life with. But Cain is self-centered. And in his self-centeredness, instead of repenting and approaching God appropriately, he chooses to murder Abel in a jealous rage. Well, in verse 9, the Lord calls out to Cain and asks, Where is Abel your brother? Of course, God knows what has happened in in the same way he did with Adam and Eve last week, but he is giving Cain the opportunity to confess what he has done. But unfortunately, Cain isn't interested in confessing. He responds sarcastically that he doesn't know where Abel is. And he's even so bold as to tell God that he's not a babysitter in charge of keeping up with him. And so in verse 10, the Lord confronts Cain about what he has done. And he says that the blood of Abel is crying out to him from the ground. That's a very graphic way of expressing the reality that something very, very wrong has happened. And in verse 11, because of what he has done, the Lord curses Cain. Now, last week during Q&A time, we made an important distinction when it came to the Lord's response to Adam and Eve's sin. We saw that in God's judgment, the animal kingdom was cursed, that the physical earth was cursed, but Adam and Eve were not cursed. They had consequences for their sin, but they were not personally cursed. And so we need to understand that a curse is an irrevocable decree that God is against you. You are irredeemably under his judgment, and that's not the case for Adam and Eve because God is going to provide redemption for them. But here, because of what Cain has done and because of his repeatedly unrepentant attitude, the Lord curses Cain. And the spiritual curse has physical expressions. Cain has been a farmer, but the Lord declares that the ground is no longer going to yield to him. And so last week, Adam was punished for his sin by his working of the ground becoming difficult. But from now on, for Cain, it's going to be impossible. Essentially, he is sentenced to scrounge for food wherever he can find it. Not only that, but the Lord declares that he will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Now, Cain has already shown himself to be a real piece of work. But in verse 13, he actually manages to reach a new low. He protests that this punishment is more than he can bear. 
This is too severe. Despite that he just left the dead body of his brother lying in a field, he's concerned that under this curse, someone is going to find him and kill him out of vengeance, and he doesn't want that to happen. Now, if I was God, I might have just struck this dude down on the spot. I I can't deal with you anymore. But in an incredible act of mercy, the Lord provides protection for Cain. He places a mark on him so that anyone who comes across him will know to leave him alone. Now, the text doesn't say what that mark was, and there have been all kinds of interesting suggestions over the the course of history, but the Lord puts something in place so that anyone who sees Cain will know not to harm him, and anyone who violates that will experience punishment seven times worse than whatever they do to Cain. And this is the first example of of what in systematic theology we refer to as God's common grace. God's common grace, which simply recognizes that God provides all kinds of various blessings for all the people on earth, regardless of whether they are in a right relationship with him or not. You don't have to be a Christian in order to have food to eat or to enjoy friendship with other people or to benefit from God's general providence in, in the world. And so as Jesus told his disciples when he taught them to love their enemies, God causes the sun to shine both on the evil and the good, and he sends rain for both the just and the unjust. Right, Cain is completely undeserving, but the Lord graciously chooses to provide a measure of protection for him anyway. And then in verse 16, we see that Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And so here we have a progression. Last week we saw that the Lord drove Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden to the east, and now Cain is driven out even further to the east. And beyond being a a geographical detail, this portrays humanity moving farther and farther away from God. And so Cain has been cursed by the Lord because of his sin, but the story is not over for him yet, as we'll see beginning in verse 17. It says, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. And to Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mehujael, and Mehujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Adah, and the name of the other Zillah. And Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And so picking up in verse 17, we see how things progress as Cain and his wife have children and the earth continues to be populated. Now, before we go any further, you you often get the question, and I even had a, a brief conversation about this last week, who is Cain's wife? Where does she come from? Well, Cain's wife would have been one of his sisters, 
which sounds very odd and, and even inappropriate to us, but, but I want to explain why it wouldn't have been for them. Okay, so if you think about it, from the very beginning, for, for the earth to become populated by, by only one original couple, brothers and sisters would have had to marry at least in the beginning in order for that to happen. And before sin entered the world, that would not have been a problem because the, the genetic abnormalities that we associate with that practice would not have been an issue. And so the theory is that the human DNA has gradually been affected little by little over the course of time so that even after Adam and Eve fall, there would have been several generations before sibling marriage became a problematic issue. And the Lord finally forbids the practice in Leviticus chapter 18. And so even though they aren't specifically mentioned, Adam and Eve have more than two children. We'll, we'll see that clearly next week in chapter 5. Uh, but the text simply focuses on the people who are relevant for the story. And so Cain's wife is just there in the background. But at any rate, Cain and his wife have a son, and they name him Enoch. And we see that Cain builds a city for his family to live in and names it Enoch after his son. And then the text traces the line of Cain for several generations. We see that Enoch fathers Erad, who fathers Mehujael, who fathers Methushael, who fathers Lamech. You can say all that three times fast. And then we slow down a bit to focus on Lamech. And so in verse 19, we see that he took two wives. One is named Adah and one is named Zillah. So while God instituted marriage back in chapter 2 as a, a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman, Lamech decides that there's enough for him to go around. Or perhaps there's simply too much of him for any one woman. And so he takes two wives. And next, the story gives us a little bit of information about Lamech's children and their contributions to human development. So verse 20 says that Adah bore Jabal and that he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. And so in other words, he became a, a nomadic herdsman. And we see that his brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who played the lyre and the pipe. So in other words, he invents the first musical instruments. In verse 22, it says that Zillah bore Tubal Cain, and he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. So he discovers how to make tools and weapons out of metal. And then we see that his sister was named Naamah, and I'm sure that she was a very interesting person, but the text doesn't give us any specific details about her. But in various ways, we see that the developments of human industry actually have their origin in Cain's descendants through Lamech. And then in verses 23 and 24, we see some poetry, a song that Lamech writes. And in this song, which is dedicated to his wives, Lamech brags about killing a young man who either intentionally or unintentionally has, has wounded him in some way. And at the end of the song, Lamech declares, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. In other words, Lamech is big and bad, and there's nothing anybody can do about it. Lamech is large and in charge. He runs this thing. So Lamech is involved with multiple women. He kills people, and then he writes songs to brag about it. This makes him the original gangster rapper. That's his place in the Bible. And, and in all seriousness, we continue to see the progression of sin here. Right? Adam and Eve felt shame over their sin. Cain was indifferent about his sin. It didn't bother him. 
But here, Lamech actually celebrates his sin. And so things are getting worse and worse. But the major issue at play here is that essentially Adam and Eve have lost both of their sons. The Lord has promised that a descendant of Eve is going to destroy the serpent, but it's obviously not going to be Cain, and it can't be Abel. And so the Lord is going to have to provide another heir, and he does that as we finish the chapter beginning in verse 25. It says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And so as we pick up in verse 25, Adam and Eve have another son named Seth. The name Seth means appointed, and Eve sees that the Lord has appointed Seth to be her descendant since Cain killed Abel. And Seth goes on to have a son named Enosh, and then at the very end of the chapter, we get an interesting detail where it tells us that at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And and the phrase, to call upon the name of the Lord, is one that you find throughout the New Testament and even in the New Testament. And it can mean to pray, uh, to call out to the Lord for help. Uh, More generally, it can refer to the act of worship. Or it can also have a prophetic sense of declaring who God is and what he has done. And it's not clear which meaning is intended here, or perhaps the the ambiguity is intentional to include all three meanings. But in some sense, Adam and Eve, Seth and his descendants, come to have some kind of formal relationship with the Lord. And it's going to be this lineage that we trace throughout the rest of Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament as we make our way to the promised Messiah. And so in our passage this morning, we see the effects of sin continuing to spread and infect every area of creation as the human population grows. And as we've already seen, there are certainly lessons that we can draw from what we see in the story, but the real purpose of this passage is that it establishes and develops what the Lord said would happen last week. In chapter 3, verse 15, the Lord promised the serpent that he would put enmity between his seed, his descendants, and the seed, the descendants of the woman. In other words, there are going to be people who take the side of the serpent, and there are going to be people who take the side of the Lord through the woman. And these people are going to be in perpetual conflict with each other until that singular descendant of the woman defeats the serpent. And here we see that development as Cain proves to be the seed of the serpent by killing Abel. And the Lord gives Seth to be the seed of the woman going forward. We see this distinction even in the New Testament. Uh, In John chapter 8 verse 44, Jesus tells the Pharisees, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. And so as those who are opposed to Jesus... The Pharisees prove that their spiritual father is Satan. They are the seed of the serpent. And this family line goes all the way back to Cain. We saw that when we went through the book of of 1 John several years ago in chapter 3. John writes, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. John makes it clear that Cain is the original seed of the serpent who opposed who is opposed to God's purposes through the seed 
of the woman. Now, this is not to say that, that Seth's descendants and his lineage is going to be full of perfect people. Well, we're going to see that that is not even close to being the case. But it is to say that Seth's lineage will include those who are in a proper relationship with God by faith. And it will be through them that God brings his promised salvation to fulfillment. And speaking of that salvation, there's a very interesting play on this story in the New Testament at the very heart of how God restores what Adam's sin has broken. So in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, the author is explaining the salvation that God has accomplished. And he tells his readers that they have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, like Abel, Jesus was put to death unjustly. But while Abel's life was taken from him, Jesus declared in John 10, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And while Abel's blood called out for justice to be served, the blood of Jesus calls out that justice has been satisfied as he has paid the price for our sin for us. And for our purposes this morning, what determines whether we belong to the seed of the serpent or the seed of the woman is how we respond to that blood being shed. Jesus, the seed of the woman, has defeated the serpent through his life, death, and resurrection. And he gives us the opportunity to become the seed of the woman by repenting of our sin and trusting in what he has done to save us. And so this morning, I pray that we will trust in the blood of Christ that has fulfilled God's purpose of redemption. Let's pray together. Lord, as always, we thank you for your word. And as we read this, this very familiar passage about the story of Cain and Abel, Lord, I ask that you would give us a fresh appreciation for the fact that you did not simply bring everything to an end, but that you have sustained the, the descendants, the line of the woman, so that you could bring redemption for us through Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the fact that while, while Jesus' blood was shed in a, in a similar way as Abel's, Father, the, the purpose and the meaning behind that is entirely different, that it has opened the way of salvation for each one of us. And so, Father, as we reflect on your word during this time of response, I pray that your spirit would stir our hearts. Father, lead us to respond in, in light of your word. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.